0: Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a Next Steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our Give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. rock first? Who's, who's like rock is your go-to right away? Yeah. How about scissors? Who throws scissors first? What are you thinking? What? I don't understand that. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Um, we'll get to this in a minute and uh, I'll explain to you why I had you play that game or why Chris had you play that game. But we're entering the home stretch of our series called The Making of a Leader. We're, we're studying Nehemiah and the leadership principles and values that we learn from Nehemiah and how that might carry over into our workplace, into our homes, into our communities to make the world around us better as we seek to be great leaders. Um, And I think that's important for anyone who's trying to grow in any way, shape, or form to understand values and principles that will make the world around us better. This is something my wife and I are trying to do with my son. Any opportunity we get to do this, we lean into it. And uh, we had one of these opportunities two weeks ago when my wife and son were playing the game that you just played, rock, paper, scissors. And, uh, and my son was dominating, which is good because he's a competitive kid. I don't know where he gets it from, but, but he hates to lose. And, and he won like five or six straight games, and I was kind of getting embarrassed for my wife. I was like, he's five. Uh, you should win one. And... Uh, and the reason he was winning is because he kept throwing rock and my wife kept throwing scissors. And again, I'm like, why are you doing that? That's like the worst of the three to throw. It's, it's the weakest, I think. Um, but, but, uh, but my wife finally wised up to my son's strategy. And so the next round came and my, wife, my, my son said, rock, paper, scissors, shoes, because he doesn't know that you're supposed to say shoot there. Uh, he says shoes, which is adorable. And... And so he goes, rock, paper, scissors, shoes. He throws rock like he always had, but this time my wife threw paper, which means that my son lost, which he was not happy with. He was devastated, but he wasn't going to go down without a fight. He looked at me, I was sitting on the couch, and he said, what? Dad, how does paper beat rock? And I was like, that's a great question. I don't, I don't really know. So I had to start thinking through it. Like I understand that, that, that like rocks crush scissors and scissors can cut through paper. But what does paper do to rock? Like provides shade on a sunny day <laughs> or keeps it dry when it's raining? Um, well, I don't understand what, what, this, what this means. And there's, there's a wise man who once said this, paper does no structural damage to rock. Rock is fine. Rock can break through paper at any time. It should be rock, dynamite with cuttable wick, scissors. That's how the game should be played. Like, this makes sense. So I have to give my son some credit because he's right. That would make, or the way the game's played right now doesn't seem like it's right. But it doesn't change the fact that my son lost the game. So after we explained to him that that's just the way it is, he said what we all say when we experience something that we feel is not right. He said, Dad, that's not fair. My son had felt that he experienced an extreme injustice that day. (laughs) Something was not right. Something did not make sense. Something did not align with the way it should be. Well, today in our study through Nehemiah chapter five, we see Nehemiah experience something that was not fair. It was a prevalent and real injustice that some of his people were dealing with. But the stakes were a lot higher than a game of rock, paper, scissors. Let's turn to Nehemiah five, verse one, and we're gonna dig right in today. Here's what we read in verse one. Nehemiah writes, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. They're hurting, they're marginalized, they're powerless, they're oppressed, and their oppressors are some of their own people, their wealthier Jewish brothers. And as we learn through, through the next four verses, it's getting so bad that some of them are having to sell their daughters into slavery in order to survive. This is an urgent situation for those under Nehemiah's leadership. And as a result, it became an urgent situation for Nehemiah as well. He made their problem his problem. He made the injustice he saw in them his injustice, and it caused him to act. This issue became the problem that needed to be solved. Now, as we read this text in in 430 B.C., and when we read any texts that we find in the scriptures, we, we understand that this is written for a specific group of people at a specific point in history with specific cultural ramifications. But every weekend, we draw modern-day truths and values from these ancient texts. And here in Nehemiah 5, we see an extreme injustice and a leader that is positioned to do something about it, and I think that there's a lot for us to learn from it today but I wanna stop for a moment because I, I, I wanna just acknowledge that, that I realize something as I, as I talk today. Um, I am fully aware of how much of a buzzword the word injustice is in our country today. There are political undertones to this very word. Just to put your mind at ease, my goal today is to not move toward any political stance or even have a hint of political suggestion in our conversation That is not what our study in Nehemiah is about. My hope and my earnest desire in our time together today is to read the scripture and see what the Holy Spirit desires to teach us and how we might grow as we're led by Him. So I'm I'm aware, and if the word injustice is is a trigger for you, um, stay with me because I I believe that Jesus has something of value to teach us today. Now, with that being said, I don't think I need to convince anyone that there is injustice in the world. I mean, even these ancient texts bring to light a modern-day travesty that we see happening around the world in 2018, where there are still families who need to sell or feel they need to sell their daughters into slavery in order to survive. And when we hear about things like this, and we, and we, we read about this on our, on our social media outlets or, or, or we, we hear about it in the news— it doesn't sit right. It, 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 it's, it's, it just doesn't feel like that's the way things should be, like that's not fair, and we're right. That is not the way things should be. And our typical response when we hear something like this is either somebody's, or somebody needs to do something about that, or I'm gonna help someone do something about that, or I'm going to do something about that. Regardless of our response, we all agree as followers of Jesus Christ, and, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, if, if you're a human being, which I think most of us are, um, if you're a human being, we long to see a world rid of injustice. We desire justice for all. But what, what defines justice? One way we can look at, at justice is by defining it as the way it should be. So let's attempt to look at justice today not as someone getting what they deserve, which is how we typically tend to think about justice, someone getting what's coming to them, but rather let's think about justice as restoring things to the way they should be. The Hebrew word that captured the Hebrew understanding of this and the word most often used in scripture to describe God's intentions for the world is the word shalom, so injustice then, injustice then is a disruption to all of this, a disruption to shalom. But depending on the lens in which we view the world through, injustice and the perception of justice, the way we think things should be can look completely different. I mean present in the world today there is my justice, there's your justice, there's rich justice, power justice, um, there's ISIS justice, clan justice, street justice. There's even such thing as hillbilly justice. Um, I learned about this. One of my friends here at Cornerstone handed me a book called "Hillbilly Elegy" by J.D. Vance. It's got terrible language, so don't blame me. I think he forgot I was a pastor, um, but, but which says something about me, I think. But it's a man's it's a man's story who grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. And he talks and writes about the justice, the people he grew up around, and and the justice that they ascribe to. And I can tell you now that that the book that J.D. Vance writes and the justice that he describes looks a lot different than the values that were instilled in me by my parents as I grew up as a pastor's kid in Southern California. Justice looks completely different to both of us but all backgrounds and upbringing and political affiliations considered for those of us who identify as followers of Jesus Christ. I think this is an important way to start our conversation today. For those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, do we not appeal to the justice of God? That the way it should be is the way God says it should be. Shalom, the world as God intends. Is this not the the lens in which we view the world through? As we read scripture, we we learn a historical account of God become man and Jesus' own witness to God's love, a witness that centers on problems of violence, brokenness, conflict, and alienation. And from from our understanding and comprehension of of God's story, we, we grab a hold of our calling and our mission as we encounter injustice, when we see a problem that needs to be solved, which I believe, I believe that followers of Jesus Christ should always be the first to recognize injustice and then act upon it. Because we're imitators of Jesus. A man who is very clear on his mission. As he once said, The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, one of the major themes we see throughout Jesus' life and, and even throughout scriptures is that when there is someone or some group in power and they use their power and influence to oppress the weak, the people of God do not stand for it. It's not okay, so we take action. You know, followers of God actively seek to move things toward shalom, the way God intends. Nehemiah lived up to this here in chapter 5, as he shows us that anyone with influence, any leader, anyone with power, God's people, followers of Jesus, when there is a problem to solve, when things are not the way they should be, effective leaders are the first to recognize injustice and do something about it. Or another way we could put this is that when things are not the way they should be, effective leaders affect change. And Nehemiah here in this chapter gives us a step-by-step process on the most excellent way to do this. If you've ever wondered, like, I hear us talk about injustice a lot. I hear us talk about what we should do when we encounter something that's not right. Nehemiah gives us a great outline for what we should do when we encounter something like this. Look at verse 6 with me. When I heard their outcry and these charges, and we have to stop right there, just a few words in, because there is, there is such an important step that Nehemiah lays out for us right here. When there's injustice present, we have to stop and listen. This is the first step to effect change. This is how we recognize that there's a problem in the first place. I mean, it's, it's easy to think about injustice that's just happening out there in the world, um, something that, that, that we, we read about or see occasionally, but... But I think when we take time to listen, when we're we're open to seeing what's going on around us, we might realize that there's problems God calls us to address right nearby. We seek to understand and know what is causing the outcry. This is the realization of the problem. Um, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil writes this in her book Roadmap to Reconciliation. She says, Realization is more than intellectual awareness or cognitive understanding. It is the visceral awareness of reality and a sense of one's relatedness to it. When we understand reality for someone else, reality for the man, the woman, the child, or the group of people crying out for help, it leads us to own the impact of the injustice for ourselves, and it strengthens our empathy toward those living with the problem. And I think as we do, it causes a reaction and this is what happened for Nehemiah. He listened. When I, when I heard their outcry and these charges, look what he says next. Four words. I was very angry. A righteous anger developed in him. Not the flaring up of some sinful temper, but rather the expression of well-placed indignation at some of the, way, the ways that the Jews were taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. His own people are being treated unfairly and because he's taken the time to listen, he now identifies with these people and when he hears the problem, it causes a holy anger in Nehemiah. He could not believe the selfishness and greed and insensitivity he's seeing from the haves toward the have-nots. Their own neighbors were hungry and broke and those should have been the most compassionate people, but instead they're the ones profiting from it all. This was not just; it was not shalom. So Nehemiah got angry. Let's take a moment and ask ourselves today. And this is something we talked about a little bit during this series. I think Pastor Becky earlier on, when we were talking through Esther, um, she, she asked a question like this: "What what breaks your heart?" I think a great question to ask ourselves is when I hear when I hear about a problem, what what makes me angry? What 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 breaks God's heart and then in turn is breaking my heart. And then when we identify that, I think we begin to see what God is calling us to do about it. So, so what do we do? What do we do when we get angry? Well, the obvious next step is to, is to react and throw a temper tantrum and write an email and write a Yelp review, right? Obviously. Um, unless you want to be an effective leader. If we desire to be effective, we do what Nehemiah did next. Nehemiah writes. At the the beginning of verse 7, I pondered them in my mind. I love how Nehemiah is just walking us through this. It's literally a step-by-step, listen to the outcry, get angry, stop and think. Stop and think. Nehemiah shows us that before you speak, before you act, you think. The the Hebrew word here is is the word consulted. So Nehemiah is saying, I consulted with myself. Or, Or another way we could say it is, my heart consulted with me And this is a leadership principle we see from both Nehemiah and Esther. They, 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 they're two individuals that are, that are such great leaders, and when they face a big decision, they don't just jump right in and react, they stop and pray and think before making a big decision. Nehemiah took a step back to ponder God's direction. He's bringing Proverbs 16:32 to life. Here's what we read in Proverbs 16:32. "He who is slow to anger." is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. He got control of his feelings. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so good at this. Like, I never react. I never lose my temper. I was asking my wife, hey, do you have any stories for me to put in during this anger section? And she's like, "Uh uh-huh, but you shouldn't tell them. (laughs) So, So instead, I'll ask you, Can you think of a time when you got angry and did not take the time to think before you acted? How productive was that? Did it get you anywhere? Did it lead to anything good? Did it change anything? I know for me, for sure, when I get angry, when I react, it's not productive. It does not get me anywhere. So I would be wise, and I think we would be wise to follow Nehemiah's lead here, as he took time to think when he saw a problem, and then he came up with a game plan. Let's read verse 7. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting, which is another great step. We're not gonna spend too much time on it because we've talked about this before, but gathering people together, getting input from other voices, seeing who else can speak into the problem, gathered a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now, here's what you're doing. You're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued... Here's what Nehemiah says to them next. What you are doing is not right. What you are doing is not right. This is not the way things should be. This is a disruption of shalom. Beyond that, and just, just think how, how frustrating this would be. These wealthy Jewish people are selling their own people into slavery that Nehemiah is actually trying to buy back out of slavery. So it's creating this cycle that Nehemiah is just like, what are you thinking? Stop it. Stop treating your own people like this. Furthermore, you're being a terrible example to those around us. Look at what he writes at the end of verse 9. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Jewish people were called to be a light to the Gentiles. This is the opposite of that. This is not, this is not a great example by any stretch of the imagination. You're giving them a reason to to doubt who we are and what we believe. So we can understand Nehemiah's anger. And so, so, so he's listened. He's identified the problem. He's gotten angry. He's taken the time to think. He's gathered people together. And this is when the next step comes, the step that helps us move to action. The next thing we see Nehemiah do is make a judgment. This is when the the issue at hand moves to action. This is when we truly see a leader affect change. Look at verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also the interest you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Nehemiah makes a judgment for what these oppressors need to do. He says, give it back. Give them their homes, give them their money, give them their property. Give it back to them. Now, I wanna just pause for a moment and take a a little uh, rabbit trail here and and make a side note because as I was reading and studying this week, this brought to light something that I was like, "Ah, this might be a really good next step for some of us today because I think it could be a great reset for us. Is there something that any of us are holding over someone else that God is putting it on our hearts right now to give back to that person? Maybe it's money or resources owed to us um, maybe it's unforgiveness that has broken a relationship that we've that we've attempted to guilt them into paying back the debt that is owed. Maybe it's a grudge that we're holding over a family member or a people group or a political party. Whatever whatever that is, maybe today is a good day to say, you know what? God's called me to give that back to release that. Okay. Um, I also want to want to stop because there's something that popped up in my mind as I was writing this this step make a judgment now before we go any further i realize and i understand this is this is a heavy word right this is a weighty word for a lot of us i said weighty weird there weighty word for a lot of us judgment is a good thing right as long as it goes this way like as long as there's someone else being judged we like seeing people get what they deserve, I know I do, Uh, my wife has been kind of thinking that I'm getting a little older, because every night I watch Animal Planet for like two hours, I'm watching shows like Lone Star Law and Northwest Law, where it's all these like police officers, wildlife officers going and arresting people for breaking the law, and it's awesome to me, I don't know why, but I love seeing people get what they deserve, I love seeing people who do wrong getting justice, but at the same time, while I say all that, I know that for me, I want grace. Like even when I, when I think about the scope of my life, I know that when I stand before God one day and before God makes his judgment on me, I'm going to say, hey, hold on, before you make your judgment, can I just tell you my side of things real quick? <laughs> and I fully expect and I fully hope for God to say, you know what, just forget it, come on in, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. But, but, that's, but that's not what I deserve, Right? Like, I deserve judgment for all of my wrongdoing, for all of my sin. I should get what I deserve. I should pay for my wrongs. That's the way it should be for me. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. When it comes to justice, justice requires judgment. Justice requires judgment. You cannot have this without this. You can't throw this out if you want this. Justice requires judgment. So I should be judged. In order for everything to be the way it should be. Luckily, I get to read ahead, and I know that for the justice I deserve, Jesus took the judgment upon himself. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But in our text today, we see Nehemiah seeking justice. And because justice requires judgment, he needs to make a judgment. And he does, he judges the rich. But as we read and we understand this this story, we see that the justice of God is the driving force behind Nehemiah's judgment. And because of this, his judgment of the wealthy and powerful carried with it extreme grace and also, at the same time, extreme compassion for those that are being oppressed. As he talks to the oppressors, he appeals to their heart for their fellow Jews and uses the term brothers four times in these few verses. These are your people. These are your fellow Jews, your brothers. And it implores a response from the powerful around him. Verse 12, we will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will give our power away. We will give our wealth back to these people. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And at this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. He made a judgment call. He said, here's here's the deal. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Here's what I'm gonna tell you to do. Give it back. And they did. But the thing I love about Nehemiah is these weren't just words that he threw out to the oppressors. Nehemiah consistently shows us in these chapters that we've studied that he is a leader who chose to lead by example. As my dad has said to me for years and years, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks way more than your talk talks. I'll give you a moment to figure it out. It took me forever. Uh, but I've shared this with you before, and it's, it's just so, it's just, the reason I remember that is because my dad impressed on me from such a young age that what you do matters so much more than what you say. Over the last few verses of this chapter, Nehemiah describes how his walk talked how he lived this out and led by example. He says, when I was appointed governor, I didn't take the food allotted to the governor. The the governors before me, those preceding me, uh, verse 15, they, they placed a heavy burden on the people. They took 40 shekels of silver in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted, I love that word devoted. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Nehemiah goes on to describe not only his devotion to the work on the wall, but also his devotion to his people, which is such a valuable last step of our sequence. Number seven, be devoted. Look what he says next, furthermore, verse 17, furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and, some, and, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Nehemiah was so devoted to seeing his people thrive that, that, he, that he committed to them at the expense of his own comfort. He chose devotion over desires. He chose the conviction of his heart over the convenience of his life. He used his influence and wealth and power not to make a better life for himself, something he easily could have done and probably should have done. He deserved that. He built these walls in 52 days. Good job. You deserve it. But now he's calling these rich Jewish people out for this this same thing, for what they're doing. And instead of using his power and resources to give a better life to himself, he's using those things to relieve the suffering of the poor. He is generous and gracious. As we look at the leader Nehemiah was and the leader he would be in the 21st century, I I think this begs the question, how are we using our power and resources. Two things that we are not lacking. Exceptions, of course. But generally speaking, we have amassed a certain amount of power and resource. I was thinking about this the other day when uh, my son and I were hanging out and he had a sneeze attack. You know when someone sneezes like 10 times in a row and you think something's terribly wrong with them? Um, I think it was allergies or we just need to do a better job cleaning our house. But either way, he sneezed 10 times and then looked at me with this super overwhelmed look on his face and said, Dad, whew, I have too many blessings. <laughs> yes, you do. But we got to take a moment and just talk about the idea of blessing. And, and I was just, you know, you know, you get these little reminders from unexpected places. And, and I, was, I was reminded how, how blessed I am. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I am so blessed with redemptive love and grace and mercy of my Savior. And, and I am also reminded that as followers of Jesus Christ living in the Bay Area... Many of us are also so blessed when it comes to the riches and wealth and power we have. Some might say, from the outside looking in, that we have too many blessings. Generally speaking, in Western culture today, we work five days in order to provide enough food, shelter, clothing, and health care for a seven-day week. Some families need to only send one adult to work in order to provide these things for an entire household. In most cultures throughout the world, this is unfathomable. If we earn more than $37,000 a year, we're in the top 4% of wage earners in the world. I know, we live in the Bay Area, you're like, $37,000 a year, that's that's below the poverty line. I could go on and on with statistics about this, and I wanna be clear, my goal is not to make anyone feel guilty about, about what we have, but rather, I hope that we're empowered to act when we realize what we have. We're blessed. And the difficult part of this is that sometimes when, when we, we live in our day-to-day, and this is just the reality for us, it can cause us to perceive that things actually aren't all that bad for other people, that their problems aren't big problems. I mean, if they were just more educated, if they worked harder, if they spoke up more, then they'd be okay. But Jesus calls us to pay attention to the pain of others and consider it legitimate pain and then act accordingly. You see, when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's not what you have that matters. It's what you do with what you have that counts. Throughout the gospel, Jesus Jesus makes very clear ties between justice and generosity. I mean, read the parable of the landowner in Matthew 20, and you'll see Jesus kind of, um, there's people that are challenging his idea of justice, and, and he questions them, and he says, what are you, envious of my generosity? What, what do we do with what we have? Are we generous with our wealth? Are we kind with our influence? Are we devoted to those around us and the work God has put before us? There may be an opportunity this week where when we listen and, and, and we see something and we're aware of something and we realize that there is a problem that God might say, hey, this is what I'm putting right in front of you. But are we more aware, and this is such a great, great, great question to ask ourselves, are we more aware of the convictions of our heart or the comfort we crave? I mean, think about that. Are we more aware of our convictions or our longing for comfort? For some of us today, the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, and let me just be clear, there is no way that, that as leaders we're going to affect change without the Holy Spirit. None of this happens without the Holy Spirit. But as the Holy Spirit works in us and through us to solve the problems around us, it may mean for us that we need to lay our desires down to pick up something that threatens our comfort. I have a friend here at Cornerstone who laid down her comfort. She laid down her entire career, her success, the power and influence she had gained in her occupation in order to pick up what God had called her to. We'll put her story online this week, but she started this nonprofit called Monthly Miracles, and I can tell you now that the faith and compassion this woman has to see men and women who look a lot like the have-nots here in Nehemiah 5 be restored and given an opportunity to thrive is amazing. She is affecting change. She is solving a problem, and this is something that marks followers of Jesus Christ. Throughout the story of God, we see people lay down their comfort to follow God's call on their life. And it produced something great for the marginalized and oppressed around them. Jesus asked his future disciples to lay down their fishing nets, the thing that they knew, the thing that gave them their income, their security, their safety, and said, hey, now you're going to fish for men instead to seek and save the lost, to care for the widows and orphans and and the sick and the spiritually dead, to bring the message of hope and healing to the world, a message that would cause most of them to die a gruesome and terrible death. And we've learned in our study through Nehemiah that God called Nehemiah to lay down his position as the king's right-hand man, to lay down his comfort and his wealth and his status, to rebuild the wall and repair the relationship between God and his people. This is so true of how any person of influence and power affects change. They give power to those around them. Fighting for justice means giving your power away. And this goes right against one of our greatest temptations because we have an inherent desire to obtain and hoard power, to gain influence and authority and wealth and hold on to it. But the inverted way of the kingdom of God says that you give that away. This is what Nehemiah did. He was generous not just with his resources but with his influence. He used his power for those without power. He was devoted to them. How's this sitting with us today? You know, let's let's ask ourselves when I recognize that things aren't the way they should be, how do I respond? What's God calling me to? And I'm not asking everyone to go start a nonprofit. I think that's a huge step. But, but with those, like, even like a, your kid comes home and tells you that, that their friend's being bullied at school, how do you stand up for that kid? Your neighbor comes by and talks about how there's just some marginalization happening in their lives because of their gender, their race, or whatever else. How do you stand up for that person? What, do you, what does it look like for you to give power to the powerless? What, what can you say, God, I need you, now that you've opened my ears to this and opened my heart to this, you've made me aware, I've, I've gotten angry, help me make the judgment. Help me make a call that will give a voice to this person that will defend this person that will help me stand up for this person that I can rem- that I can move this toward action. How do we respond to the problems happening across the world and the problems arising in our own communities? What do you see? That's not the way it should be. You see leaders affect change. They fight for, for people. They solve problems. They move things toward shalom. I'll close with this, but, but isn't this what Jesus did for us? Did Jesus not surrender his power on the cross, consequently giving us the power to choose him? This is what gives us hope. And this is the thing we cannot miss because while we think and dream about the way things could be and the way things should be, we have extreme hope because we know what we say could be and should be, Jesus says will be. What we say could be and should be, Jesus says will be. This is who we follow. The same Jesus who knew that justice required judgment, but instead of allowing us to take the judgment, he took it upon himself. We don't get the judgment we deserve. We don't get what we have coming coming to us because Jesus said I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Jesus, the man who stands at the center of all we believe was treated with extraordinary injustice at our expense. The man who taught us that all people have inherent value was executed. The man whose definition of good and just and who informs our definition of good and just was treated Unjustly, And he did all of this in order to provide a way to save. He came to make all things new, to restore, to heal. Jesus came to set everything the way they should be. As we read in 1 John chapter 4, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the gospel and it's good news to everyone. The rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, just as, in, just as justice requires judgment, God's justice requires love, grace, compassion, and mercy for everyone. Justice for all. And we have a part to play in it. As we seek to listen to the problems around us, may this be our motivation our lifestyle, our fight, when we encounter a problem that needs to be solved, a change that we can affect through the influence and power that we've been given right where God has positioned each of us. May we be able to pray with sincerity the same prayer that Nehemiah prayed at the end of this chapter. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Father God, open our hearts to the men and the women and the children and the group of groups of people around us that are crying out, God, that you've positioned us to hear their cry. God, from, from the things that seem huge to us and the, scenes, the things that seem like, man, that's, a, that's an isolated incident, whatever that is, God, I ask and pray that you just open our hearts and you give us the courage and motivation to act and also the direction to act, God. But God, we know that it starts with just an awareness and a realization of the problem. Father, help us to follow your lead, that as you gave your life out of love for us, that we would do the same for those around us, that we would love one another. God, help us to pray the prayer and live the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God. Let us be a people that lives this out, that brings restoration, that brings shalom. We love you. We're, we're grateful to be partnered with you, God, that you would use us and choose us. Position us well this week. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.